Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Owatari Dorgan, and with me, as always, is a man who's apparently never experienced warm towels before. <laughs> I am the Adam Glass, and what, you guys don't keep your towels in the freezer? It just <laughs> gets out of the shower like it, the towel just cracks. <laughs> yeah. It, you know, it, the, the extra work you have to do to wrap a frozen towel around you helps you dry off more quickly. And the, Especially as the uh, water the shock, just freezes. You know, it's like, okay, when you, uh, when you walk out of a sauna, you know, mm-hmm. you've got the hot, the hot water all over you, and then you put that cold towel around you, and, uh, and you really wake up in the morning. Do you take a sauna every morning? <laughs> I t- my hot water heater's broken. Can I ask a question? <laughs> this is unrelated to our podcast. Um, okay. Are tent the towel saunas pop- totally related. <laughs> it is related. Are tent saunas a thing in the United States? Because they're a thing here. Uh, I don't know what. A, uh, on I TV, assume that a is bunch just of a sauna times, in a tent. Like a bun- on TV recently, they keep doing these like things, like on like the variety morning shows and stuff, where they're like, "Oh, they, you know, like these like portable t- like sauna tents you can set up in your yard." One of my neighbors has one and freaks me out a little bit. <laughs> Every so often, there'll just be a tent out there, and then people running in the in, mean, uh, people running from their door. And this was the middle of the winter. People running from the front door of their house. To the sauna tent and back in their in their uh, swimsuits in like with snow on the ground. It's very, it's it's been an it's very Nordic, like a sweat lodge. But yeah, like no, a it's just like totally that's lodge. the idea. It's just like I just need to know like if it's a, exclusively like a thing that's popular collector. here or other places. Uh, <laughs> I think they, they. I have never. I've never seen. One. Okay, know, that makes me collector. feel better. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've never seen an Oregon collector either. The government destroyed all of well, those. Well, I showed you one uh, the other day. Uh, it's it, they <laughs> call it a personal <laughs> recording booth, but it's basically just an Oregon uh, collector. So, in J- in Japan, they sell personal recording booths. Jonathan, he sent me a link, uh, but they're designed for like uh, students playing the trombone, like oh, at school, good. so they can isolate them. I have like <laughs> so ten it's of like them a in a four room, foot, right? It's a four foot tall cedar box that you sit in, so moths don't touch you while recording. Pat, we, uh, we have some friends with us today. Uh, Jonathan and Casey Hape have joined us. Hello, Jonathan and Casey Hape. Hello. 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 We're so, uh, we're so happy to have you. Jonathan was, uh, was last on our podcast nearly a year ago. He was the last person I invited uh, willingly into my house uh, before, uh, before everything shut down. Everybody else you um, invited were really <laughs> just against just that. Oh, there yeah. have, no, there have been a lot of people unwillingly in my house. Uh, most, not, most of not the buffing floors. Not, and, not uh, that and I kidnapped them. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, as you can hear on some of the uh, previous week's recordings, there have been contractors in and out of my house uh, at, uh, at very early hours in the morning doing very loud work. <laughs> on Saturdays at eight thirty, um, and they've made me angry. <laughs> but 
they're down. They're they're down. Down. They're done. They're down. Uh, they're down. <laughs> they're done. They get it, now. man. They're cool. Uh, they're down. You know. Yeah. yeah. This week they uh, they were painting my basement uh, because the landlord decided that the the white plastic like vinyl sheet thing that was on the bottom half of the wall when they fixed the foundation needed to match the rest. Wait, so they, they painted everything they white. They painted the vinyl sheet? <laughs> no, they painted the rest of the basement to to match the vinyl sheet in color. So white with those weird letters that they, they are written on there is like serial codes and stuff when they sell it at the Home Depot? Like, <laughs> maybe, it's not a plain maybe, white yeah, sheet, right? That. Like it's It's got like writing yeah. on it and stuff, right? Uh, like, so it's like textured. It looks it? like it's it's like uh, like a really really cheap shower lining is like not like a, a shower curtain, but oh, like okay. what you like, would put up it's, on the wall. It's like a shower. shower. No, and that's if you that's were like spending a, zero money. That's like a moisture uh, blocker thing. Like yeah, we even have those right, right, like right. in random spots of the school. So it's like, almost like a splash guard. Actually, like right, it's right, right, right. It's not one hundred percent what should be used for in a basement but yeah right right anyway they decided to paint the rest of the basement and uh on monday the landlord told us that we would not have to move anything out of the basement we could just move all of our long-term storage stuff that's down there to the center of the basement and they'd paint uh but the uh the painter showed up and said i'm painting the floor what do you (laughs) what do you mean (laughs) um so uh so when i woke up oh go ahead yeah i don't know when i woke up wednesday morning I walked downstairs and all of all of the stuff from the basement was in our kitchen. Oh, which is not large enough for all of the stuff in the basement and to use the kitchen. So, uh, so it wasn't magic. I was, as I suggested, I was, I was further in a problem because I couldn't have anything delivered to the house because the day before they had poured new concrete front steps. So I was. And the back of the house, they were pouring a new patio and had removed the rear steps uh, to facilitate pouring the patio. So I was basically stuck in my house with no way to cook. Uh, and I, listen, uh, child me had the right idea about keeping snacks under his bed. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> uh, well, uh, a really great part of this was the the vinyl haul that happened uh, because of pulling oh, yes, things up from yes, your basement. Yes. So now I have a bunch of records that I... Probably would have never sought out some I might have and just, yeah, super happy about Uh, that. My roommate has been in this house for a decade and has many roommates over the years. And one of them, and he does not know who, and he has reached out to a number of them. But one of them left a large wooden crate full of records. uh, And uh, we've decided to, to donate those to a Goodwill or something, thrift store somewhere. But I let Jonathan go through them, and I went through them, and there were some some pretty nice pulls yes. out of that. Some very interesting stuff. Yes. Some uh, some stuff that someone probably misses, and a whole lot of garbage. Well, uh, I mean, do they miss it though? Because they didn't come back for it, or apparently, like even contact their former right, roommate right, right. about it. Like, I I think there's there's some stuff in there that probably if the person who owns it realized that's where it was. They might be interested in it. Yeah, but I suppose. I mean, I, they're clearly not using the record collection very much. <laughs> right. I assume it's actually uh, just Ben's, and he doesn't remember. Like, the other possibility, right? Yeah. Uh, yes. Well, some of them have have labels from a record store I know has only been open for ten years, so they're not uh, 
They're not that old. There was some spoonful stuff. Oh, in there. really? Um, yeah, dollar bin spoonful right. stuff. But, Interesting. Uh, <laughs> spoonful stuff. Uh, but yeah, I got a uh, a seven inch of Jeff Buckley uh, that's on a translucent blue vinyl. It's very nice. I haven't I haven't tried playing anything out of that box yet though. So we'll find neither out have how I. They are. But yeah, I mean the Fleetwood Mac <laughs> stuff, the early Fleetwood yeah. Mac stuff is sweet. The Monkey stuff, I feel like you guys probably would have just been like the Monkeys, and whereas I'm like, oh my god, more Monkeys albums. Right, right, right. <laughs> like, it's a lot of Monkeys. I want to collect all ten songs like on a, on a <laughs> six different records. <laughs> No, they 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 have Absolutely. great full uh, albums. For well, sure, for sure. let's. Uh, it's fun catching up, Pat. We just you know, Pat, Pat and Jonathan don't, and don't see each other all that often. I get to talk. No, to not Pat. very often. But uh, the 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 virus. Is, he's in Japan. <laughs> he is in Japan. It's true. Um, but uh, you know, before we get into the movie, let's talk about our Patreon real quick. Patreon.com/slash Lost in Criterion. If you want to uh, support us, help us keep going. Uh, you can do that over there. For just a dollar a month, you get access to bonus episodes. Uh, they are non-criterion films. You get to vote on what we're going to watch. Watch a pretty eclectic mix of stuff over there from Critters 2 to Dog Day Afternoon, uh, which are essentially the same movie. Right. I mean, uh, at, at, the, at the at the heart, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, But we have a lot of fun. It's always four movies in sort of a themed list, and then the fifth option is Kazam!, uh, and it's which is themed because it indi- matches all themes as we've discussed. Right, it is right. the universal Kazam's movie, the Ur movie. Uh, everything is derived from Kazam. Uh, it's just displaced from time. Yeah, it just echoes forward and backwards in time. It's it's a thing. Yeah. It's very Star uh, Trekky. <laughs> but uh, but that's fun. Uh, it, we also often over there have supporters suggest lists that we make, and usually if a supporter suggests a list, they end up on the bonus episode too. And we've had a lot of fun with that uh so yeah if you uh you if you have a episode? particular movie that's not on the criterion yeah. collection that you want us to watch for as little as a dollar a month you can uh, you can probably get us to watch it yeah. over there at it's not Patreon. hard to get us to watch Lost criterion. Uh, for a little extra money five dollars uh we uh we thank those people on air for just the people who want to pop up a little bit uh steven goldmeyer is our only five dollar supporter very grateful to steven for that he's also been on a lot of a lot of the bonus episodes and had a lot of fun with those over there um, he's been on a couple of the main podcast episodes too. As uh, fairly recently, he was on the uh, vampire episode. That All was, right, yeah, that was real yeah. interesting. With yeah. with extensive vampire um, knowledge at his at his disposal. Yeah, like, he had, I'm talking, he, he brought had just references. read a vampire book. I was impressed. He had just yeah, he had just wa- read a book about vampires in film that was very <laughs> very interested and informative. He already made um, us look bad because he's already done more research than we've ever done for any movie right, we've talked right. about. Yeah, we don't even watch the. We don't even read the books when the movie's based on a book. Yeah, well, certainly well, not. That's, I especially avoid yeah. those. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a little above that, ten dollars and above, we do something that I think is pretty dang special. Pat makes a piece of art based on one of the movies we watched recently, Uh-oh. and I get that printed up on a postcard and write a little thank you note, and mail that off. Uh, <laughs> Pat, it is time. You should be working on one. Um, uh, no, it's it's mostly done. I'm doing some finishing touches on one. Yeah, that's $10 and above. And, yeah, we'd like to thank those people on air as well. Thank you to Christopher Otto, to Jason Westhaver, to Michael McGrath, to Patrick Yalko, and Adam Speakerman, our $10 and above supporters at this time. Thanks, guys. 
if you want to see the postcards and you're not a supporter yet, you can head over to redbubble.com and search for Lost in Criterion, and you can see all of the past postcards that, except for the one that uh, featured a likeness of Godzilla. So (laughs) Toho threatened to sue us, uh, so it's gone. Uh, But but on a three-month delay so that our... Supporters get them first and can enjoy them, and then you can go and uh, and buy them if you feel so inclined. I don't know if listeners are buying them, but we have made some sales that I'm pretty excited about. We're rich about. now. Uh, one, yeah, no, we make uh, we make twelve cents on each postcard that's sold. <laughs> like and, I said, rich. Uh, we've made we've made sixty cents so far. Oh wow! I believe. So, <laughs> I'm waiting that's for my lot. check, Adam. <laughs> I will. I will. Send it to you. I'm gonna be. I'm gonna. Um, I'm gonna beat Elon Musk to Mars. That's my plan. Yeah. You. This may <laughs> end up being probably the longest of the uh, Patreon uh, little bumps that you have because I have to say I have been a Patreon supporter. I uh, am a patron of the show. I love the postcards. I did it for the postcards, and it's a reminder because Adam told me that I think it's one my check card when I switched because I lost one or something, but I'm. He reminded me by me not being in that list that I am not supporting currently, and that's a good reminder to me. Like that ad was just for me, like yeah, just yeah. oh. I was trying Jonathan not to be passive aggressive about it. No, Jonathan was supporting us, and I I assumed that you know we we had talked about it, and then Patreon does this thing where it tells me when someone's card is declined. It doesn't tell me as far as I know, but I get yeah, so many emails to that account. Well, Patreon like, is a very really, well crafted yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, that's not information no I need. Is the thing, <laughs> yeah. That's not the that's not the information that I need. Um, I don't need to know that the card was declined. Sure, it's nice to know whether or not the money's coming in, but I don't need to know why it's not, as far as that goes. Uh, but uh, but I I let Jonathan know just in case it was a mistake, and it, it was. He had updated the card and forgot to update it in Patreon, but then it just disappeared from Patreon. So <laughs> I assumed that you had you had. Some sort of, I mean, you just bought a house. You don't need to be supporting us. But I, but, I enjoy the postcards. <laughs> yeah. And but, uh, if I can't yeah, be on the show you... once doing the theme song, I have to be on the show twice yeah. by name and three times. <laughs> right. And I didn't get a chance to be on there three times because now I'm just on the show right. not mentioned in the Patreon yeah. thing. It's just well, a whole bust we'll at this point. Lot. We'll say your name a lot this time. And if you want, uh, if you want all the postcards you've missed... Uh, over to Redbubble Red and send me and 12 cents. For, uh, <laughs> well, you'll actually have to pay a dollar fifty. We get twelve cents from the cut, but uh, uh, I'm sorry. It's a good deal. No, I, twelve cents for the for dollar fifty is a good deal. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, this week uh, we've asked uh, the Hapes to join us because they have been on every Wes Anderson episode we've done so far, and uh, a few other good episodes too. But Wes Anderson is. Uh, no, they like Wes Anderson, and Pat doesn't. So okay, um, let's no. not accuse me of <laughs> Pat's like of things. Pat's that, getting defensive already, so we like won't, yeah, because I I um, yeah, we'll talk about it. That's this, be the episode. this week though, we are talking about Wes Anderson's first film uh, from nineteen ninety. Well, his first feature length film from nineteen ninety six, uh, Bottle Rocket. Bottle Rocket is also his first uh, short, which they made in ninety two, uh, and uh, stretched out into this movie through a process that we will get into, I'm sure. Called stretchification. Uh, <laughs> called stretchification. They, they strapped it to a table. It just slowly, kept turning that uh, wheel. <laughs> yeah. Added more expansions to the table and then took some of the expansions out because it was just too much. Yes. Um, 
But, uh, yeah, the uh, the Criterion release of this includes 11 deleted scenes, uh, and those are just the ones that they shot uh, before they were cut out. Uh, there's a, there's a behind-the-scenes bonus documentary on the DVD that also talks about the first screening of this, uh, in which Mark Mothersbaugh is the only person who liked the movie. Well, and <laughs> and one one person who wrote them, I loved this film and like a bunch of things like that, and they held on to it. And even once they lost it, they memorized it. And right, Wes Anderson right, talks right. about how he met her, and she was like, "I was the one person in that theater, and I wrote a kind thing." He was like, "I know who you are. I know what you wrote. Like it was the only thing that like kept us going." Because everybody else much. wrote, "This is shit" on it. So right, <laughs> right. one person literally wrote, "This is shit." One person, according to the documentary, one person wrote, uh, uh, "Why didn't we see her boobs?" And, oh my uh, god! And why? Why is <laughs> James Conn funny bad. in this? Or something like yeah. that, like <laughs> something to that effect. Like yeah. this isn't a James Conn comedy. What the hell? Or something to that effect. Right. Pretty great. Right. <laughs> oh yeah, James Conn's involvement with it also comes up in the. Uh, well, they interview him as part of the, the behind the scenes thing, and uh, James Conn describes this as, as it was three days. It was like being the corner square on Hollywood Squares. It was just. <laughs> He was in. He was out. Yeah. And he had no information about the character. They're just like, uh, play it big, and or he decided to play it big. So, um, he fell back. Fell back on one of my tools of being, being uh, a scene eater. Not that he really eats the scenery in this, but, but yeah. Uh, so yeah, he got into it. Um, they had premiered the short at uh, Sundance. And it had a real positive response, and they did a uh, they did a workshop at Sundance too, off of that. And uh, an associate of James L. Brooks, uh, whose name I can't I can't remember her name right now, Polly something, mm-hmm. uh, but she she uh, saw it, told James L. Brooks that they needed to make this movie. Uh, Brooks came in. And decided that they needed to make this movie, so they uh, he went down and met with uh, with Owen Wilson and Wes Anderson, who were writing it. And apparently, all of them lived in the same apartment mm-hmm. at the time. Like yeah, all of the Wilson that's brothers, a story. Musgrave, uh, yeah. James Con <laughs> lived there too. No, James Con didn't live there, <laughs> but, uh, but the rest of them did, uh, and Anderson. And uh, and they'd just been writing the script and writing more and more of the script and had never actually uh, never actually read the script. And James Brooks said the script was a normal length, but it was all dialogue. So so he got down there and he just said, "Well, have you ever read it out loud?" And it had never occurred to them to read it. Oh out my loud. gosh! <laughs> He'd just been writing. So they had they had a table read and he said it was just the longest the longest thing he has ever yeah he basically described it as like leaving for three days coming back and they were not not done yet or something <laughs> like that yeah um but uh but that was uh uh con base or uh brooks basically describes it as uh just uh you know all of their end and like all of the producers kept like making suggestions to them uh hoping that in doing those whatever they suggested something would click in Anderson's mind um, about changes that need to be made. But then, but then none of, none of that ever like clicked. He thought, well, they're reading out loud. They're going to realize uh, where the issues are in reading out loud. Well, they didn't. 
Um, <laughs> not that the, uh, not that they didn't eventually fix those issues, but well, um, I mean, the description but, in the documentary but it basically wasn't. lays out it took like two years to get them to strip the, right. the, the script down. It kept expanding instead of contracting, and like. Right, There's just right, scenes right. that like make no sense that are just in there apropos of nothing, and then like, why are these in here? Characters we've never met popping up in scenes that don't need to be. Well, and I in think the movie period. I think it's interesting because I, I've never seen the short film, and obviously it was you know a quick thing and fun, and people liked it right, and right. asked them to do more, and they had no idea how to do that, and so you just throw up you know everything you can right. it, every it, idea they had right and it makes sense to them pare that down the odd thing to me is that bottle rocket is the majority of the 90s like it's not like his first movie 1996 and then he moves right along to rushmore right after he did but after like spending the 90s making this movie all trying the way to from, learn how to make right. a movie. How, learning how to make a movie <laughs> right. and that's yeah. that's very interesting and of course you would be let down whatever the reaction is other than oh, being a blockbuster yeah. which it could Absolutely. never be there's no way for it to be even yeah. even reservoir dogs which they reference once and they kind of it's compared to which is really silly because it's almost like the venture brothers world of comics right. you right. know what i mean right. it's right. the failure that happens it's these people that you know un- unlike other Wes Anderson movies where his world is the world of the entire thing. This one, Rushmore, the world of the main character or set of characters isn't like anything else around them. You know, they're kind of off in their own world. And it's strange that it took from, you know, 91, let's say, through 96 to like just get that right out there. But I think it had to be the way it is for his style to come along. Brooks really believed in it and the, he brought... Owen and, and Wes out to Hollywood, set him up on the Sony lot with an office that apparently Wes was living in. Um, <laughs> and uh, and they spent a year, and they were getting $100, $100 per diem and $700 a week each. And, <laughs> and the producers say it was probably the most money any of them had ever made. And there's there's uh, uh, there's sort of a, a, a conflict in the behind-the-scenes thing of who was dragging their feet more whether it was Wes and Owen making more money than they'd ever made before, or the fact that James kept coming in and saying, oh, the movie's not ready yet. You know, we can't, we can't go start shooting yet because it's not ready. Um, so, you know, James L. Brooks also just facilitating them making more money than they'd ever made before was, uh, was nice of him, I guess. Right. Too. Well, uh, right. But, but like, I mean, year, honestly, from every description, it sounds like he was right. The movie was right, not ready right, to right. be made. Like, the reality of the right. matter is, is, like, you know, the thing I kept thinking when I was watching, the, the behind-the-scenes the do, demo, uh, uh, documentary revealed a lot of things that were really fascinating to me because what it told me, and, and not all of them were positive uh, for me, mentally speaking, but, like, the amount of time that got poured, and energy that got poured into essentially a group of people who at the time were fundamentally incapable of making a movie is, is a really fascinating thing to me yeah. because people don't, as far as I can tell, usually get that kind of intense nurturing when they're, they, when they first start yeah, out in they, these kind of businesses. Well, and Anderson when they're had, Owen Wilson, who like didn't even really want to be an actor, you know well, what that's, I mean? That's like, what I'm saying. It's like, it, it like he almost joined the Marines after this movie. Right. right. <laughs> Like, and that's kind of my point is like, I don't want to, like, I do not want to accuse anybody of being 
bad at their job or anything like that. Like Wes Anderson is a is does good work that is interesting and works for a certain group of people very 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 well, and and is a movie that really resonates for them. I am not one of them, but that is not relevant <laughs> to this discussion. Um, but my point is is that like when this started though the sort of nexus of this was essentially a producer dumping money into what was essentially a dead end venture <laughs> and right. saying i well, will make you guys into movie makers because none of them have any any history of this like right. Owen Wilson doesn't have any history of this Luke Wilson doesn't have any history of this Wes Anderson doesn't have it like it's like well i found these three guys these uh, three guys made, at college <laughs> yeah that made a short and I'm going to turn them into, I'm going to make them make a movie. And, like, it's a fascinating right. social experiment. Like, it is borderline just like <laughs> like that, like the weird desert bubble experiment. Where they're like, can we, can we get a bunch of people to live in this bubble in the desert for a year? Um, but, like, it, it is also fascinating because what it, and I don't want to, I will only take this in a negative direction for a few seconds. I promise. Most of my comments okay. from this four day from this point forward will be my thoughts on Wes Anderson generally, but like not in a negative way, but like, please note, I think it is worth noting that the three men who had oodles of time and energy poured into them are three really middle-class white dudes. Just like, Mm -hmm. like they're, they're the children of real estate developers and like, uh, and like, I forget exactly. I read their their bios to just confirm this for myself. There's just a bunch of upper middle class white dudes who are like, we well, are going to make private it. high school. Like, yeah, I know yeah. at least the yeah. Wilson Wes brothers Anderson went to did. private yeah. school, yeah. and then right, Wes Anderson did you, too. Yeah, okay. Uh, actually, yeah, yeah. So, and yeah. and like I read their bios. Like Wes Anderson, one of them is like the son of a real estate developer, and the other is like the son of like a a marketing person for like and like TV station right. like local TV station owner like like they, like the net result was good like they it did produce people who make really generally interesting work and it, it is the net result is good but like just it's worth noting that like you know like there are other you know the three the, the, these three guys well, at the well, you can say that a, about a lot of indie anything whether it was alternative music or, right. or independent cinema that was being made and or pushed at the time but it was it was like kind of the before like nerd culture necessarily so it was still almost like well these guys are nerds there's still a voice that hasn't been heard before by this group not now i'm saying that that's not a justification right. that's yeah. still misguided but at the time that makes a lot of sense. That's what was coming out. It was it was kind of like the doors were open by, you know, whoever in those fields to allow that to happen. Again, Scorsese was the person that was like, I right, love this right. and like maybe help right. pull it in that yeah. direction. And, and, you know, yeah. other people of that ilk who had who were just kind of nerdy white dudes, you know, like. Yeah. Yeah. Scorsese loved this movie. And he, uh, he in fact, uh, in a blurb written for for the Criterion release, talks about it being uh one of the most authentic movies he'd seen in years um, and, and views these guys as now was Spike Jones also our, or Spike Jones was uh, Spike Lee also on that for, you know, the movies he was making of the time right, as right, well right. that were also independent movies by a black yeah. man and that, you know, like that should yeah, have been Scor- up there, you know, like <laughs> do the right Scorsese's thing should be there, you know, yeah. Scorsese's interesting in, what he connects with 
see, you know, Scorsese is a promoter of cinema from around the world, right? Uh, and usually across race and class lines. Um, mm-hmm. So it's it's maybe interesting that he connected with this at all. Um, but he uh, well, it being counterculture in ev- right, kind of right, every right. way. It, I, I have written down it's the most '90s of his work, and it's also very, very un '90s in a lot yeah. of ways. You know, there right. are things there that right. are staples of it, but then there are things that are like, again, completely yeah. counter to even what was cool at all. Scorsese's description of this movie is actually really interesting. It says, uh, "Here was a picture without a trace of cynicism." The obvi- that obviously grew out of its director's affection for his characters in particular and for people in general, a rarity. And the central idea of the film is so delicate, so human. A group of young guys think that their lives have to be filled with risk and danger in order to be real. They don't know it's okay simply to be who you- they are. Um, Scorsese's an interesting guy. <laughs> I mean, it, it, he does. I mean, it's Scorsese an, among his yeah. talents is excellent at film analysis like he, he's very <laughs> right. very good at like critical analysis of film and he's right i mean like his statements about the film are 100 percent accurate there, there's no argument about sort of the core concepts of the movie or anything like that um right and and but yeah you are you are valid to point out that these are these are guys who are being given opportunities that no one else was given uh who already had a life of privilege up to that point. Not, not, you know, as much as some other people, no. certainly. And uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, American novelists I can think of uh, and writers whose parents were of similar financial means who, uh, mm-hmm. who are maybe positioned as, uh, as coming from nowhere when they didn't actually come from nowhere. Right. And we talk, you know, and, that and I don't think about. that these these guys though talk about coming from nowhere. No, Maybe I don't. Nowhere, I, don't like, they, I mean, they complain about their apartment, sense. but that's a normal human <laughs> right, thing to do. Right. Like, it, it's fine. Yeah, right. Like, in your no, they're 20s not positioned or whatever. Yeah, I, and that's why yeah. I didn't want to make it a big, big point because it's like it's not like a narrative right. of like, oh, we we dragged ourselves up by our bootstraps. We were, you know, it's not one of those like we were making films on a shoestring no budget from like. We we're stealing cameras from the local store and then beating up old ladies to get film and right. like you know like it's not one of those kind of things. So, but you know at the same time these these characters as opposed to I know that a lot of people or at least when we've talked about it, uh, when you don't like Wes Anderson, a lot of times it's because you can't relate to the characters. Same reason why I've always compared it to you know his work to like Salinger's with Catcher in the Rye because it's kind of this character that you're supposed to be rooting for, but why I don't really like him. And I think, you know, Rushmore was like that maybe the first time I saw it, and now I love Max. You see the whole transformation, maybe. And then right. um, this movie took me a lot of times to actually like some of them, but I don't know why, because, again, 1994, 1996, these other movies were comparing it to um, these other directors of the time. If they had a character like Dignan, he would be an atrocious person. He wouldn't just be somebody who was very misguided in where his interests lie, you know, he would have done some terrible things instead of doing what he thinks are really cool things that just happen to be on the wrong side of the law or whatever, right. you know, like he's just, I mean, it's the theme of autism. I just see in all of Anderson's movies and Dignan is like the most autistic character I've seen him have other than Dudley. Like <laughs> just period. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. Dignan's interesting. Cause he doesn't, 
he wants this life of adventure, but he doesn't really want to hurt anybody. Right. <laughs> Yeah. And, well, and that's because because it's the not, first he doesn't, the first scene. Like he doesn't like he. I mean, like when we talk about like sort of like you know, sort of in this in this case, like his their characters are sort of rendered as being sort of emotionally stunted. They don't they haven't like fully developed as as like as adults, and they and that that he has a romantic idea of what adventure is that is based almost exclusively on apparently bad heist movies. Uh, yes, but like, right. it, it is it is fundamentally an innocent like kind of obsession. It it doesn't it, it becomes un, not innocent because he takes it further than, un, he than can. One would be would be willing normally be willing to. But then he even sort of like does come to a kind of halt on it eventually. But like we even see that like w- one of the things about Wes Anderson movies that has always struck me that I find. Not, I don't like dislike it, but like, like Dignan's not a his character arc is not complete when the movie finishes. Like he's not, he hasn't like fully self actualized by the time we get to the end of the movie. He's not like yeah. over that yet. Like, I mean, he's moved forward, but he's not completed his arc, which is yeah. We what it leaves us with is we don't know what will happen to the characters when the movie ends. Like. There's a world where Dignan's life gets much, much worse instead of better <laughs> over the next 23 months. And you it's see that in that slow motion in his yeah, eyes. Yeah, and the, the look yeah. on his face at yeah. the end. Yeah, you, yeah, right, you really right. don't know. You, no you could expect that, yeah, when he gets out, it, yeah, he's just going to, you know, just amp it, amp it up, try again. Right, right. Yeah. Whereas and, the other guys are probably going to get more legitimate because they're like we were only in this because we were bored now well, we know and, and we also do, because we're friends like, with dignan too like i mean like well, he is the, yeah the, he he's cares part of, they care for him exactly you know? and so like yeah. without him as an influence over the next 23 months it's much easier to imagine like anthony like actually getting his life together because even yes. for the little while he's away from dignan he like creates a self-plan it's a it's not it's a kind of like wild one but he falls through with it. He can, he's yes. actually keeping it, and so it's really interesting to imagine what happens to them all for the next you know year or two years, which is. Well, um, and you wonder why why they even were friends in the first place. You know, Casey and I were talking about this, but you see how he reacts when future man's like making fun of him. He's like, "Sure, I'll do this thing against all of my better judgment that I really don't want to do because." He wants to. He doesn't want Dignan to feel terrible. So when Future Man is like, you know, being like, "Oh yeah, d- d- you used to do all kinds of things: mow our lawn, trim the hedges, mow the lawn." Like he says, "Mow the lawn twice," <laughs> right. which is amazing. And I did more than mowing lawns. Yeah. And that's when you know Anthony is really just like, "Okay, yeah, I'm in." And you wonder how many times in like grade school that happened, and then how many more yeah, times in high he school. Gets pulled right, in right, just because right, he wants right, right. And then it's like, yeah. <laughs> hey, remember when? Uh, isn't it funny how you were in the nut house and now I'm in jail? Like, <laughs> it's just, and and again, the whole first scene, the fact that he just, he's like, yeah, I think it means a lot to him that I just like break out of here and yeah, even I have the to climb out this window. Yeah, even the I keep wanting to call him the dean, the warden, or whatever. The the head yeah. of the institution is just like. Okay, well, you know, and he's saying bye to everybody, and Dignan still has yeah, the, yeah. the binoculars and flashing the thing, which is a reshoot. They didn't have that as the beginning originally. Right, right. That was in the original beginning of the film. You know all you the, need to uh, about the characters in that scene, yeah. you know. The, the short introduces the characters in, in a different way. It's the, the them walking to 
Anthony's parents' house. Mm-hmm. That we don't get the reveal that it's Anthony's parents' house until you know after the pinball thing. Um, but uh, but they're talking <laughs> as they go. They're talking about a uh, an episode uh, Anthony remembers of Starsky and Hutch, where uh, there was a uh, a bomber who kept calling different payphones all over the city. It was it was very much. Uh, the uh, the third Die Hard movie in plot, um, <clears throat> but he kept calling, calling different payphones, and like like Anthony's character barely remembers it, uh, and and uh, Digman is uh, just uh, I don't think that's a real episode, and they're like arguing about whether or not it's a real episode of Starsky and Hutch as they go as they jump the fence and go to the go to the house, um, but it's essentially. Besides that very first bit, it's the first act of the movie is the short. Um, so they rob the house, then they go to the diner. They have that conversation about the earrings. They get into a little argument. Um, there's a little bit extra in there. They steal a wallet from a car um, with $8 in it, and they're very excited to get $8 <laughs> for Digman. Um, and, uh, and then they do the bookstore robbery, but we don't actually see the bookstore robbery. We just see the... Uh, we we jump back to the outcome of the bookstore robbery, okay, <laughs> and and them sitting with Bob talking about the bookstore robbery after it's over. And for years, the uh, bookstore robbery is the only part of the movie that I remembered, like at all. Yeah, like yeah, I had and to write like, things down. Then now I'm like, oh no, I know I know this movie now. <laughs> right. And then the the like the punchline of the short is like Bob getting huffy and walking away and digging saying. Uh, $68 is a lot of money, man. It's a good pool. <laughs> like, and I don't even know if that's meant to be Bob's cut or if they only got $68 from the, from the <laughs> bookstore period. But, but, uh, but yeah, and that's, that's essentially the end of it. So it's, it's that. Um, and like I said, that was really popular at Sundance. And then Sundance did not want to touch the full length at all. Well, you know, I kind of get it, though, because yeah. what you just described to me is a really tight short film. Like it, it sounds it really was... engaging. It, it like I take it you didn't watch it. It's actually not that tight. But, I've never uh, seen it. But well, it is I mean, engaging. Like, <laughs> I, I have never watched the the short. Like yeah. um, I don't know other than today anybody who has. Uh, but like right. Right. what I mean though is that like even if it's not like tightly written or anything like that, what I mean is that like you can feel like you can. I kind of get it. When you describe it, you can feel like, oh, we're going to extend this out. You can already kind of feel the feeling of this going off the rails a little bit. You know what I mean? If you're yeah. like, oh, well, we need to stretch this out to an hour and a half, like you're like, your brain can just sort of spiral out and be like, this is just not going to – what is this going to become? Is it going to become just a straight heist movie? What, like what is this going to turn into? Well, it, and it's it even kind of was. They had – they had like a James Dean sort of character and it was going to turn into this like much more serious thing. And like at one point they realized two things. Number one, there was like a moment where they had to cut him because they had to cut out the scene. That was a crux of the film where the guy just goes, no, and start shooting. And they're like, this is not, we don't make this kind of movie. <laughs> then they realized like they couldn't have shootouts. Like that's not a thing they do either. Right. And that's where it becomes, like I said, that Venture Brothers sort of thing where you're only seeing like when they get back from the adventure or them never breaking into a fully realized version of this, you know, like right. it's just them seeing it from the outside. But I, I personally think that the second act is so strong. I love the second act of this movie. I think that 
um, the three acts that he often does with character um, or costume changes is really important and starts in this movie. But I think that the the hotel or the motel is such a that I thought was the short film. I thought the short film was these guys. Like just if I would have watched this motel. movie, hanging out at the motel, him falling in love, yeah. things falling Meeting apart. A girl. Yeah, yeah, I, you know, like they just come right after this sort of thing. So I love that. That's the thing that they ended up doing. Like, yeah, that's such a huge part of the movie, you know. Yeah, and it 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 pauses. It gets it lets Anthony get his footing, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. as his own person. Um, even as Dignan doesn't. Uh, Bob has uh, to save his brother succumbs to saving his brother, which it's interesting because it's not, it's not that it's not having to save his brother that fixes Bob's relationship. It's (laughs) It's their house getting robbed blind. It's it's them getting completely robbed blind. Right. And that's, that's an interesting aspect of this movie is that the uh, Bob's major character change movement is that this, uh, this working class, maybe petty bouge, uh, James Kahn pulls one over on all of them and robs the richest person in the narrative blind and like fixes his life by robbing him blind. <laughs> uh, which is interesting too. That, uh, you know, it's not that they're, uh, I mean, the Musgraves, or the, not Musgrave, Robert Musgrave is the guy who plays him, the Maplethorpes, which is such a rich person name anyway. Uh, but the, the Maplethorpes are uh, so rich that we never see their parents. Their parents are just traveling. Yeah, like, they're in they're, Singapore, they're, right? right? right. They, they think they're in Singapore. The they club. think they're in Singapore. Yeah, they're not they even sure. They are, yep. Yeah, um, but but yeah. So they're just they're just out there. So like they're obviously just rich beyond well, uh, measure as far right. as anyone. And that else and that whole setup concerned. does a really like I actually I do really admire some of that kind of, like some of the film craft and all that and like the storytelling. Like in all their tightening up, they actually created something pretty, pretty compact there, where like yeah. they lay out why Bob and his brother are so absolutely fucked up as human beings. Right. Like right. it's like, oh yeah, our parents are like in Singapore or something. We don't like the uh, they just basically don't exist as people. It's yeah. When Bob keeps touching the gun, and mm-hmm. they they walk into the kitchen, uh, you know, Dignan goes into the kitchen, and Anthony goes after him, and. And Dignan says, uh, oh, "What a, uh, what is Bob that he deserves a kitchen this nice, or, or something along that right. line?" While he's in the kitchen, um, which is a James Brooks line. Apparently, apparently, part of their writing process was was setting up a scene and then saying, "Hey, James, can you give us a joke for this scene?" And James coming back with something that was either good or great, according to Wes. <laughs> uh, unsurprising from James L. Brooks. That's my uh, favorite but, scene yeah, of the whole movie is when they're planning the, the bookstore heist and Bob won't stop touching the gun and right. uh, yeah. Dignan gets upset and then, you know, he's like, yeah. he's out. And You're out the, too. I don't think I'm in either. And <laughs> just like, yeah, yeah. leaves right. the room. Uh, the tantrum is just... Yeah. yeah, it's so good. It's so good. Now, in the short, that scene is in Anthony's apartment and is also where the the proto version of the it's my house argument also exists because <laughs> um, they start getting into an argument over, over the gun and, and uh, Anthony says, it's not your gun. This isn't even your apartment. And, uh, and that, yeah. Anyway. Uh, so, so there are little bits of the rest of the movie that, that sort of 
move out. Um, Kumar and the gun salesman are just guys they knew from a local diner mm. that they hung out at. Right, yeah. Um, yeah, it's like they get interviewed in the documentary. It's pretty yeah. wild. And uh, one of the things in the documentary is that uh, that you know while James while James Brooks was dragging his feet trying to get them to produce a, a filmable version of the script, uh, they were actually really excited. They wanted to get back onto it because like, well, our, our local guys they're going to lose their enthusiasm. They're not. They're getting you know they they want to do it and and they're they're tired of waiting. Um, and Brooks says, "Listen, when the when the trucks pull up and the lights get settings <laughs> start getting set up, they're going to get their enthusiasm back. Don't worry about that." Right. Um, but yeah, they're just they're just guys, and obviously Kumar is goes on and mm-hmm. is in more of his movies. Um, but the the gun sales guy is the one they they talk to principally. Um, there's a deleted scene of Kumar. At uh, at the party at the Maplethorpe House, doing the plate <laughs> his plate spinning trick. Oh, nice! I, I feel like he does in something else. The terminal. He? Yes, yes, he does do it in the terminal. I forgot that is what he. Yeah, <laughs> I did not research this. I just know that. Yeah, no, you remember that. I couldn't remember where I'd seen it, and I couldn't think of what Wes Anderson movie it would have been in. Um, but it's not. It's not. Um, or as uh, there's a Neil C. C. Orega, um Tom Hanks blog experts. This is a, a thing to newbies who don't just know him as pumpkins from Mad TV. It's like all these spoofs. But he, he called it uh, the, the, uh, the terminal is the time burger. <laughs> it's just the most nonsense. So I will always see the terminal. It's just the time burger. There you go. There you yeah. go. Um, but yeah, he does the plate spin. And they they show they show a clip of that in the documentary too, because they show a lot of the deleted scenes, which is good because I didn't I didn't watch any of the deleted. We scenes own that, and I've never seen any of that stuff because I don't think uh, before this I had a desire to, and now yeah, I love the, this movie. <laughs> yeah, the Criterion list is uh, or the Criterion DVD is a double disc set. It might be on one on the Blu-ray, but but the movie's on one, and there's a whole bunch of extras. Um, a very different tone than the whole bunch of extras on last week's movie, which. <laughs> was also a double disc set because of a, a full disc dedicated to extras, which were all exposés on the United States government. Uh, but, but this week, this week it's something. Yeah, like, no, what, we, what, uh, this, last, this is definitely a, a, a whiplash <laughs> scenario this week, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, last week was a movie called Missing, uh, which was a, uh, a uh, slight fictionalization of a U.S.-born journalist who was murdered uh, – with probably U.S. government consent uh, during the Chilean coup uh, that put Pinochet into power. Uh, And the movie is his dad and his wife, played by Jack Lemmon and Sissy Spacek, respectively, obviously. Uh, But uh, uh, finding him and hitting, trying to find him, uh, as he has already been murdered, uh, and hitting brick walls. What if it was irrespectively? Yeah. I mean, it would have been a very interesting movie either way, but I think that movie would have been much more interesting. I haven't seen it, but if Sissy Spacek and Jack Lemmon played, I mean, it is irrespectively, it is an an astounding movie that I I deeply recommend. But uh, wonderful, yeah, movie. But the bonus, the bonus disc on that is uh, about half dedicated to declassified documents about the incident, yeah, (laughs) and about the about the coup. Um, Oh my god! But. uh, but yeah, this one, this one, the uh, 
Some of the bonus stuff does get a little spurious. I don't <laughs> understand one, some of what I watched and what it has to do with One of anything. the bonus features uh, on Why did this I watch the, the, d- the one about the bicycle? Why did I watch the one about the bicycle guy? <laughs> okay, so the one about the bicycle guy that I sent you and told you you didn't need to watch. Oh, I, I watched it. I sent it to you it. anyway because I could find it. Um, the one about the bicycle guy, which is called uh, Marita Cycles, the man who directed the behind-the-scenes documentary oh, okay. of Bottle gotcha. Rocket um, made this short film about his dad yes. and his dad's bicycle shop after his mom died. Bi- bicycle shop is in air quotes. Let's and be it's, very clear. In yeah. the, it's in the Criterion Collection version of this. The, the documentary is from 1978, and okay. apparently Wes Anderson insisted that this be... It, on the criteria. Actually, makes again, sense. 2008, 2008 Wes Anderson, not 1996. Right. And that's the not thing 96 about a lot of this. No, no. Like, right. Very, very quickly, the the cover, the colors that they choose, all that stuff is so in the Wes Anderson canon that if you actually right. look at the original artwork and everything for Bottle Rocket, it's so not him. And that's what I've always thought about this movie is so how redressed they had to make it for the Criterion Collection to make it fit. Um, this time through the color schemes, I didn't think that way, but like the the box, I mean like the poster, everything is now well, his style right? and how much they kind of thrust into it. But how many of those decisions, if they did this in 1996, would he be like, you got to put that bicycle documentary on well, there? Well, here's that, the interesting right? thing I <laughs> will know? say about that bicycle documentary is um, I will say that I found the bicycle documentary this is just me being a little bit facetious, but almost as engaging as the movie. Um, the bicycle, I, I, like I am being a little. It was facetious, legitimately fascinating. But the bicycle documentary is really good. <laughs> it is really, really good. It is okay, very, we, it is a have, very we good. We own watch. it, so we'll watch it. And what it made yeah. me realize is, and this is a really fascinating thing, is that that like possibly why it might be in there more than anything is that the bicycle documentary is in many ways a sort of portrait of what if Wes Anderson movie were the real world were a documentary of a real, like what that kind of experience would actually be like to interview a character who could be in one of his movies right. as a right. real person. And, 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 and it, to interview his neighbors right. about how much they hate him. And, and oh, it's God. a really interesting, like it, it's a, because it's like you kind of get into a window of like the kind of, person that Wes Anderson is trying to make but make into a character that people like or at least can identify with rather than somebody who is the bane of his neighborhood um, well he does right. he also does a lot of things that with characters where they're kind of snapshots you know of them sometimes he tries to do it in total but like we don't know a lot really anything about Dignan outside of this and so like if you almost made a like followed just him or like you said made a documentary about him maybe you would see him in a different light and right right more interest in this person well this is very much specifically focused on a on a behavior of this person he is a a hoarder uh after his after his wife passes away he becomes a hoarder and it is it is a view of like what this person who at one point was in theory like just a bicycle shop owner uh, in town, like what ha- has happened to his life, and it has all the sort of incumbent sadness that goes along with the story I just described to you. Um, but like, it's also e- really easy to read it as like this could be, th- this could be the dad in a Wes Anderson film. 
He just <laughs> could be. But he wouldn't be played the way that like this real person is. Like he would be acted differently because you would want him to be like <laughs> like you wouldn't necessarily want your audience to just be sad the whole time. Right. Uh which is what would happen if he actually played it like this real person. Oh my god. Yeah. Um but like it's just it's a really fascinating look and like it's probably the closest thing to an actual window into Wes Anderson f- that I think I've ever gotten. Yeah. I think I think if if we were inside Wes's head, we could probably see the connections where this documentary was the inspiration for Max's dad. Yeah. In, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> in that one. Yeah, in, uh, Rush, in Rushmore. Yeah, Rushmore. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why I can't think of the word Rushmore. But anyway. No, I understand. Um, <laughs> when, when, when you said that one, I was like, oh, yeah. you didn't reference anything just now. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, okay. I, I, yeah, well, that's that's what I'm saying. But then, like, you like what I mean, though, is also that, like, you you can kind of branch that out. You can sort of create a pattern from that of, like, obviously, Wes Anderson is not just copying people from right, movies right, or something right. like that but the sort of person he's gravitated to making movies about yeah. um and what that person would look like in real life is yeah. is a very different thing that and and then possibly what anderson's motivations are about trying to render that person in his films in a way that like doesn't produce the same effect that the documentary does well, um, right, and it, well, because he he like any writer actually has an arc and right. a little bit of a story circle and those sort of things. But he also doesn't like things to be disingenuous, which is funny because a lot of his things seem like paper dolls. You know, they're 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 too perfect. Right. They're too this, but at the same time, their arc doesn't doesn't leave them like I am totally changed. Actually, usually it's right. very much like they're still the same person. They've just learned this lesson at this point. Maybe in the future they'll learn more lessons, and um, right, or maybe I think they that's won't. That's true, <laughs> right? And yeah. I think that you're right. If it was just like this depressed character, and they didn't have some kind of like a a micro happy ending, maybe we don't know the macro of this, but a micro happy ending, we can get a glimpse of that, and that's a good movie. But seeing their whole life, maybe this is like a, yeah. a tragedy, right. or could be, yeah. <laughs> yeah. well, and or but even still sort of interesting, a, right? Or even just seeing the final end, right? Like, I mean, when we're talking about this documentary, we're essentially seeing uh, he's he's not that elderly, but he's older. Uh, he's very clearly sort of started to like sort of slowly taking his own life apart to a certain extent in the sense that yeah. he's not really like building new connections. He's not really like creating an, like, you know what I mean? Like he's, he's kind of sunsetted his life a little early because mm-hmm. probably because of the passing of his wife and things like that. Um, and so like, it's kind of also like, what if you saw the end of Wes Anderson film, like the end end of that character's <laughs> end, end. You know what I mean? Like if you followed one of his characters to the age 75, what, Will what I mean? What would he look like? And very possible that he's right. this guy. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. Like there's, yeah. there's so true. <laughs> I mean, just thinking about the way Anderson obviously uses influence, and the way we've talked about him using influence in in previous, uh, you know, episodes. Uh, in a way, there's a lot of Murray in Royal Tannenbaum too. Mm, yeah. Uh, no. Yeah. I I agree with that. That's actually where my brain went immediately. Was that yeah. because. 
that 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 the dis, sort of dysfunction of those relationships feels more like literally that in one of the parts of the documentary is the is um is it Bob Braverman uh is it Bob what's his first uh, name Braverman but uh right. Brian I think okay, yeah him arguing with creator. his sister because his sister doesn't want him recording his father for this documentary he does she doesn't like the idea of what it's could what it could the portrait it could paint about their family and so she's yelling at him and, and like you can kind of you do feel a lot of royalty again it's like still a step further than the movie goes where it's like oh right, fast right, forward right. the royal tenenbaum's an additional you know 10 years or something w- would it be even more like this right. right and that might be the most I'm just like, um whole whole um i mean you do follow him through the end of his life and, and but it might be the most whole that they ever made that where it is everybody is like a little changed i mean you still don't know what the relationship between the, the brother and sister are, are or you know life aquatic same sort of thing they it, there is still a triumphant ending and a completion of a story but um there's still a little mystery this one you're right though like you know two of the characters are probably going to be okay even though one of them is still you know, lives with his brother, and they all still right. have the same problems they did before. Um, and the, the improvement one, in his relationship with his brother is is minimal at best. Right, like, right. Oh, exactly. He, he just says, he "Treat me slightly <laughs> less bad." Yeah. What What's the line that he says to yeah, like, him? Like, uh, even though you're a fuck up, you're still my brother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Something yeah. along those lines. Right. It's very good. Um, there's another aspect. Jonathan got me thinking uh, talking about the 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 cover for the Criterion release. Um, very briefly in the behind the scenes documentary, they talk to the set designers uh, who talk about uh, the meeting Wes Anderson and he was just uh, cutting up magazines. Uh, oh, right. And yeah. Eventually they realized he was putting together a color palette for the film. Nice. Um, which is very interesting, you know, cause that's, that's obviously something he, he leans into more and more through his, films right yes mm-hmm. um to a to a certain point because well, I, I don't mean, think until you i don't can, think he could get I, I, more and more <laughs> until he can't get any right more. well until <laughs> you essentially but. spawn a tumblr bot that just makes wes anderson color schemes so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is a thing that existed uh, i don't know if it's i'm sure it is. <laughs> yeah. well and yeah those those colors aren't there as much until you see the criterion cover um, right, right, right. It's one of his only uses of bold red, other than Fantastic Mr. Fox, which is still like a yellow film. Um, but he tries to pull the pink out in this one, like it is um, Rushmore, like it is Royal Tenenbaums, or like it is Grand Budapest. Um, and the movie isn't really there, if anything. It's a light blue of the pool, which he says he had them pull out too much, and he wishes that it wasn't so bright. And I think it's one of the best color choices yeah i actually really film. like it that's like one of the better it's parts of the, of, of the color uh correction in the movie well, i think is is that that pool and i don't know i almost feel like because he's like oh did you guys recolor this for this criterion pool like oh i almost wonder if he did some of these things again like a george lucasy sort of thing where the version i'm seeing isn't the original um or if it's just a retransfer but either way like i think the colors are better than I gave it credit for because he doesn't focus on them as much. They're still there. Everything is still super organized right. into his eye and right where it would be in his movie 10, you know, 20 years later. Um, but like, we're not, um, 
we're not focusing in. One example is like when Luke Wilson draws the person when they're firing the guns and he looks at the end at the bullet that obviously there's a hole right through that figure that he drew. He shot right through them. In a modern version, you would see him, I said this to Casey last night, you would see him like holding that up a straight ahead shot where like a bird flies by in the background that was yeah. like animated in, you know, like it would be like really in right. same thing. There's wallpaper in the house that they're robbing and well, his parents' house at the beginning. But I'm like, I was like, maybe Wes Anderson did really get really meticulous with this. Like he did. He just didn't know how to like capture it yet. Well, he didn't know, focus. Yeah. He didn't focus it. the camera on it. Like I, the, the whatever, whatever drives Wes Anderson to be Wes Anderson is probably still there. In yeah. Bottle Rocket, it's just that he doesn't have the the sort of directing skill that would. I mean, this is he's clearly not got the same skill at showing you the things that he wants to show you that he does later on. And, and that's it. And I mean, it, there's, there's an argument to be made that he's that gone too far down that road to a certain extent in some ways in more recent movies, where that some of the dollhouse aesthetic comes from mm-hmm. him almost being like too. That's become part. It's become such a part of his like milieu that that's like what he does now. Um, yes. To the point where it may and be de- me, it may could, it could be detrimental even. Uh, Isle of Dogs is that almost overload of that for me. Isle of Dogs is a perfectly made movie that is too perfect to be as good as anything else he has ever done. And Bottle <laughs> Rocket, I used to say, was my least favorite, and now it's probably tied with Moonrise Kingdom. Um, which are still like everything of his is so smashed on a list for me, you know, with, and like, even some of my like numbers have like three movies in one line, you know, like when listing <laughs> his movies, like Rushmore, right. Royal Tenenbaums and, um, uh, uh, Life Aquatic are all like number two, you know, like, <laughs> and that's already pretty close to other things, but like, you know, this one, I don't think, I almost think there's not enough of it you know, for it to be in his thing. But over repeated watches, I'm like, okay, I get it. This is totally a Wes Anderson movie. First time I was like, this is not a Wes Anderson movie at all. Like, this is a mid-90s, yeah, you, you know, were like, "Why film. are you making me watch this?" I was not. Yeah, yeah. Casey loved it. Casey, did, I, Casey, did I you... saw it first. It, yeah. you know, like I've 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 seen his movies in order. Um, I was just you know I just lucked out. I did like um, it definitely didn't come around in a theater. You know where I was from, but I rented it at a Blockbuster. You know the weekend Blockbuster trip of you know as many movies as I could carry, yeah. and. I ended up seeing it, and then when Rushmore came out, I, I had to see it in the theater. Like, I was just like, I want to see what this guy made next. And then sitting through Rushmore, I was just like, yes. You know, it's just <laughs> Bottle Rocket is the introduction. It, it is, it's obvious that he didn't really know what he was doing, that they didn't know. But the interaction, the way Owen Wilson and Wes Anderson's brains work together. Yeah. You know, I, I just, I, I appreciate, and I like the color palette in Bottle Rocket because he doesn't set his films in the Southwest, you know, like the, and so the actual color and in, in feeling of the Southwest, especially the second act with the motel, like just the focus on, on those and, and Inez and, and everything I, I, you know, I just, I think is really special. And I think it, it does, you know, lay the groundwork for, you know, what, what he does next and you know when Rushmore came obviously you know it's just kind of fully realized what his style was going to be and then yes he has 
oversaturated <laughs> over time. And I Love Dogs was hard to sit through because I wanted to love it. And all the voice actors and, and the concept and, and everything right. was there and everything was perfect. And every minute detail of this stop motion, you know, was was there. And, you know, it just somehow, yeah, it went so far over the top and over the edge and spilled over where I was just like, okay, so is it over yet? <laughs> yeah. Which sucks. Yeah, because that's not a trajectory you want to see when you've loved pretty much every exactly. film. Exactly, it's not yeah. what I wanted. More, it's not right. what I wanted you know, to right, feel. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I mean, that's the thing. I would say, like Life Aquatic, you saw, loved it more than anything previous, and but then I'm, and then saw Darjeeling. I'm still like, which, I'm still excited for the French the French Dispatch. I yeah. mean, obviously, I've had to wait for it much longer than I could right. have expected when I heard about it. Right. And his insistence that it only opened in a theater, and you know, and things like that have have delayed anyone seeing it which is fine um you know and I, i'm excited i'm excited to see that it you know maybe he maybe he backs gets down more human <laughs> yeah yeah right. it gets well, back to some yeah, roots and, yeah, yeah it's not animation this time you know he just goes back to you know yeah we'll see. he's just focused in more and more and more and more and more yeah, every time and, like right rush in rushmore maybe like again maybe we're seeing bottle rocket and then it is like who was dignan and then you see rushmore and then it's like what's that book that he has and then it's <laughs> real ton of right. bombs and then what's a book that they have on their shelf in the background and that's life aquatic and then it's like <laughs> well what's one what was his relationship with it like every single movie just like zooms right. in more on the first mm-hmm. and and i think what we're what we're actually discovering is i i called it possibly a detriment but what i think it is, comes down to is it's more like playing with fire in the sense that like it's either going to be very well done and well received by the audience that's come to to love him or like because it's it's like a more by narrowing it down and making it more and more focused it gets more and more dangerous to make in the sense that like this is either going to work or this is going to be a nightmare that no oh, yeah. one will want to watch. And like, and you can even see that I was checking that I was playing a game with myself today where I was checking the box office numbers because I became curious about a thing that I will talk about in a minute. Um, but, okay. uh, and, and you can see it like the box office numbers, like really reflect a, like this either hits and it makes a ton of money and a bunch of people see it or it does not hit. And boy, howdy, does it not, make any yeah, nobody's ever heard of it yeah right, yeah and and i would like to explain i will i would like to explain why i was checking those numbers in a minute but a thing i wanted to, a comment more to to adam than anything else was i i from this movie get a stranger than paradise the jim jarmusch movie vibe and i was like thinking that to mm-hmm. myself and then the criterion collection confirmed it for me by putting it as a related film on the web page <laughs> Right, right. I was like, oh, holy! Absolutely. I was just looking yeah. at the. I was looking at the, like the Google image search for like. I looked up um, Bottle Rocket Criterion because I wanted to see the cover because I had to watch the just standard version, uh, and and I was like, uh, and then then Stranger Than Paradise showed up. I was like, what the fuck? Like, wait a minute, what, what's happening here? And I clicked on it. Sure <laughs> yeah. enough, it's like, no, it's these films you might and be I interested think in. That if you're was interested the last time Rocket. we were on the show. Not toys. Maybe to, uh, maybe. Strange. Well, uh, the last time you were on the show, you were. Um, I did. Yeah. Oh, you Casey didn't. didn't join us but for that. One. That's so funny because yeah. she showed me that movie. Like you know, right. so yeah. In a I, I just way, feel so. good to have sure the Criterion Collection confirm my suspicions, my feelings. Well, yeah. For they me, they break down. <laughs> they break down and are stuck at a, a hotel in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. On a trajectory of you know disaffected people that live in the city or whatever and just 
right, right, decide right. to leave. There's a lot of know. similarities. Yeah, there are. Absolutely. Um, although that one had a very sparse but awesome soundtrack, this one has a very dense mm. and awesome soundtrack. <laughs> but, Pat, do the thing you were going to talk oh. about with the box office. Well, the, so the, yeah. the reason why I was checking international or I was checking box office numbers is I wanted to see international box office numbers. Um, and this is this is a this is going to be a complicated ride we're going to go on. Not that complicated, but longer than normal. Um, not complicated. It's not hard to understand at all. Um, I started. I wondering, already am confused. While I was wandering around my house alone today, um, I started thinking about. I've, I've been one of the things that's been I've been going over since we started this was trying to understand why I don't why people like Wes Anderson films and I could take them or leave them. And I started to think about it a little bit differently. And I was thinking about the fact that I had a couple ideas, and there's a bunch of different sort of hypotheses for me, but one of them is that Wes Anderson, fo- you, and you mentioned it earlier, Jonathan, that, and I really keyed into this idea, uh, which is like what kind, of th- what kind of characters in a movie these people would be in a normal movie. And a sort of extension of that is that like Wes Anderson focusing on characters with traits that by the standards of general mainline American culture are not considered admirable for heroes in a movie. Um, Right. Mm -hmm. Now, mind you, the the character traits that are admirable for heroes in a movie in America are not actually physically admirable traits for human beings to have. Uh, Keep (laughs) that in mind. So, but like... All, almost all characters in a mainstream American movie is a, are monsters who would probably need to be taken out of society. But, like, Wes Anderson chooses characters who are not admirable by American film standards, but are very recognizable to people who are actually real people in the real world. Specifically, I think, to people of a certain age group in American society uh, that, like, well, happens to also coincide with his rise in popularity, which is like people for whom they can sort of not exactly see themselves, but see the sort of that sort of disaffectedness that we talked about with stranger than paradise, but also like this sort of like, well, yeah, I mean, I have problems. The characters in this movie have problems. They're not going to solve. They're not necessarily going to solve their problems per se, but they are going to continue like living their lives with the people they know and that they care about. And, and these sort of like these traits being portrayed in, in a movie in a way that doesn't treat them as bad, right? Because a Wes Anderson character in a regular movie that operates on sort of American standard thought processes would be like either a villain or like just the annoying guy that the movie is the uses as, a, as yeah. a comedy figure. Like, oh, he's just that annoying nerdy guy over there that like is a sort of joke for the main character to play off of. And focusing that character, I think, resonates with a certain population of America, specifically people in our age, in our a little bit older and a little bit in an onward age group, right? Well, they're funny, right? That's I think that's the that's the reason why you watch them. You emotionally attach to them because they're broken people and they have a story arc. But you watch these people because they're hilarious, right? I mean, well, Dignan Dignan could be bad, but it doesn't. I had to. This took me a minute to be like, oh, but what he's saying, Bob stole his car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, Like, it's just a hidden line. Like, when he's walking down the stairs, you don't even see his face. Those are the things that Wes Anderson got to point out a little more and more, but almost doesn't let happen as much either. But, like, he's, he's, yeah, showcasing it too much might not be funny. This almost is too hidden. Right. But, 
that's a funny line that only somebody with uh, Dignan's view of the world. Right. Uh, again, I could keep talking about people on spectrum, whether right. we're talking about the ones that aren't aware or awareness. Let's talk about awareness of oneself. He's very unaware. And then you have his characters in real Tannenbaums who are like incredibly overly right. self-aware, you know, like of the, or are, um, uh, savants. Right. Mm-hmm. Who, who can't manage society correctly. Right. You know, these, these are all parts of, and they, I could, I think you could line up all the characters in Royal Tenenbaums and see most of the high functioning spectrum people that you would meet and so like that's right. like just in different ranges so i think that like that's really important is for that these people are that kind of kind of annoying guy in the corner or are the are the villain because they're they don't function with what we see as perfect or what we want to hear from a joke or, or right but they're funnier you right, know, like... and, well, and the, but their their comedy is also dependent on a certain viewpoint in the audience as well, right? Because frame, put a Wes Anderson film with characters behaving they were the way they do in a different time frame, it's not necessarily a guarantee that the audience would find it funny, right? Like right. the audience needs to be in the r- right place too, where that like because you know comedy requires a certain amount of like sort of inter interplay with the audience, so the audience has to be able to understand it and see either themselves or people they know in it generally for it to be funny uh and and i and he's just he's almost a perfect creator for his time period in that sense and if you think about how that's sort of like if you want to think about like the rise of something like adult swim around you know mm-hmm. and that that well, it, created it, its own universe you bought into their right. comedy and you did well, that and, and so but, yeah you either buy into wes anderson's brand of comedy or you just are like Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, and, and so what? What now to sort of extend that out into why I was looking at box office numbers? Yes, I, I, I got curious about how Wes Anderson films play internationally, because if you think about how this the Wes Anderson film, Wes Anderson's films are like very much an interplay with American society in a certain time frame in American society and a certain group of people in American society at a certain time whether or not that would resonate with international audiences. Because I will tell you, I don't hear anybody ever talk about Wes Anderson films here. Like, except for when they make a big splash in the United States and then they get watched by people as a sort of knock-on effect in in right. other... And, and I was wondering, well, what, is it partially because essentially these films speak to a specific audience in the United States rather than a sort of, you know... Not to like try to like make it sound like it's b- better than it is, but like big black big box office budget action films play very well internationally because they require almost no audience buy-in. <laughs> like the audience could be like, "Yep, here we there, are. Things are gonna blow." There's up. no culture that binds it, right? It's exactly, just like blowing up, running right. fast. Yeah. We all we're <laughs> right, humans, right. and, and, and <laughs> so I I went in with a hypothesis that that that, that West Anderson films probably don't play very well internationally. And when I went and investigated, sure enough, they don't. Like most most films in the last two decades make way more money overseas than they do domestically because international film markets are much larger than, globally are much larger than domestic ones, like if you, in aggregate, right? Like if you add all the international together, you have a much bigger market than you do domestically. Um, and so things like 
if you go up look up like the the like um what's it what's it called i can't, oh, now i can't think of the what's what's the name of the movie with vin diesel in it the the car movies i can only think of the japanese and the furious. Oh, mm-hmm. thank and you furious. Yeah. uh sorry it's called wild speed here and i couldn't remember um and so I, no, I, couldn't, I couldn't come up with the not. English it's name. It's good. Is there a Wild Speed Nine coming out there? Yes, then? they are like all called Wild Speed. Nine? They are all Where do called they put Wild the Speed. two into Wild Speed? And their names are awesome. I will read them to you as a bonus on the end right. of this because they're Is all it still Tokyo to Drift. No, they're wild amazing because they all reference the plot in some way. One of them is Excellent. called like Spy Mission or not Spy Sky Mission. The one, I th- which Sky I don't mission. think is the title, the English title of the movie. It's like Wild Speed Sky oh, Mission oh, or something. Certainly like not. <laughs> uh, one of them I believe is called Ice Mission. I have to double check it, that. Yeah, that makes. Is sense. there Tokyo Drift? I have to. I have to go check and see what it was. I have watched them all in Jap- in Japan, so I definitely like. I hope it's called like Wichita Drift. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like <laughs> just like something. <laughs> that place we like. Capital they change City all references drift. to where um, it's taking place to but, Wichita, Kansas. <laughs> yeah, that would be amazing. But like, um, so like, um, what I, what I mean is those those movies do extremely well internationally because again, they're they're essentially yeah. just like you don't require a certain cultural. You do actually require a certain cultural frame. It's just one that America has imposed on the entire world because uh, they're bad movies, right? Well, yeah. but what I mean right. is that like that we, you could get into a debate about whether or not they require a certain cultural mindset. Or not possibly they do so well because America has literally indoctrinated the entire world to think that like, ah, I want to go watch big explosions and a really big muscly dude who can't bend his arms anymore. Um, yep. But like, um, so like, I just got really curious and I started investigating that, and and sure enough, like they make almost half internationally of what they do domestically despite it almost always being the other way around in most for most other movies. Which, Is it all uh, in Europe? Uh, but I don't, I, ha- they I don't have those like numbers. They just have domestic and international in the box office numbers. So, too. are we just comparing Wes Anderson to like giant blockbusters? No, I just, I just got curious. Movies. So, are like yeah. other independent, like lower? No, and, well, I, and films, that's what I was going to say. Do they play well internationally, and only he doesn't? Or no, no, it is not only him. It is, it is, it is these <laughs> kinds of movies. It's just, it was a thing I started thinking about because I'm, I, I I'm just, sure, I'm sure the Japanese market loved Patterson. Right. Uh, right. <laughs> well, the reason I got curious is because Wes Anderson can be could almost be read as a sort of like I don't know. I'm looking for a word that I don't have available in my in my mind right now, but like a sort of like exemplar of that kind of movie that does very well that does pretty well in the United States, relatively speaking. It is still very independent feeling. Very art house mm-hmm. feeling, but does does play very well in the United States, relatively speaking. And so, just as a sort of exemplar of what what this kind of concept, I wanted to investigate whether or not he does well internationally mm-hmm. or not, or if my suspicion that it really plays to a very specifically American audience. Because yeah, it's not it's not really surprising that he doesn't. No, you know, but it was of, I you know, but like we've talked about a hypothesis without movies. proof or evidence is just me just saying stuff. So I went and investigated for my own. Right. But his movies aren't aren't Americana. They're not only playing to American culture. If anything, they're an American's view of what European movies are supposed to be. If if right. you want to be cynical right. about it at right. all, you know, That's also and, true, yeah. and and that only does come from an American viewpoint. Mm-hmm. You can't have a Europe uh, somebody else looking with binoculars over into something and then just assume you're that 
and that it's going to be what they're seeing as well. You know, our version of what right. a European movie is has none of the same to do with what their version of what a European movie is. They're just Europeans. Right. They're just movies, you know? So, um, but I mean, he takes from so much other stuff, a lot of probably American stuff, you know, for the most part, but. But a lot of European stuff too. I mean, he's obviously yeah, he referencing things like Truffaut and French and, and Italian, yeah. a little Italian influence. Yeah, but French film, he was kind of obsessed <laughs> with. It's kind of obvious right away. But yeah, I mean, but the same thing could be true. Is you know, like with a French director being influenced by him, or or, or you know, well, not maybe not him, but by American cinema. Like it, you know, well, it's, it's yeah. not going to be what cinema is in that country. Right. It's, it's right. your right idea and, and, and influence of what that is right so and to that it gets a an interesting uh mirror of a mirror right, right. because yeah. like the, 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 the french wallet, stuff he's wallet, referencing yeah. is all <laughs> the french stuff he's referencing is all guys who are obsessed with american movies right, right. so yeah uh yeah i mean it's 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 turtles all it's turtles all the way down but like like my my my, my it's an american reggae band <laughs> it's like this is just a copy of American music played by Calypso bands. Well, we're going to <laughs> reverse that over here. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. Like, I just, I, I don't know. I just started investigating because I got really curious that, like, as as one of the better known art, sort of artistic film sort of auteurs, there's a chance that he would get better play overseas uh, over time, which does actually play yeah. out in the box office numbers, which I thought was really interesting. As he gains more notoriety, they tend to like achieve parity. The big his biggest one is oddly enough, Grand Budapest Hotel, made oodles of money overseas. Like that makes sense. Oodles. Um, Moonrise Kingdom. It's did my do favorite well, movie of his, and like it's the it's the only one I haven't seen at this point. But like. Uh, Oh my God! Yeah, it, okay. It is, I have a, it is his best, in my opinion. I have it's a complicated relationship. With most West of them are Anderson. second to that. As I sit here and shake my head. So <laughs> the the reason I have a complicated relationship with Wes Anderson is there's only two uh, possibilities for me to watch him: this collection, or ten hours into a fourteen hour four, uh, international flight. Uh, those are the only two <laughs> conditions under which I will watch a Wes Anderson film. Um, I will tell you that is the ideal mind frame to watch one of these movies in you've so far dissociated yourself from your own personality at that point that almost anything seems like it's reality it's it's an, it's actually an amazing experience um yeah what yeah. what other films of his haven't you seen that that's the only one as far as i know jesus christ okay whatever uh i guess uh, <laughs> no 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 sorry i haven't seen i haven't seen isle of dogs either because it made me so deeply uncomfortable at its release. I was like, no, I don't need to see this one. That's fine. Yeah. yeah. It was playing what? on an airplane. Was there, and I was like, I'm going to skip this one. I'm okay. Was there a Japanese critical response style of dogs um, that you remember seeing? My, my experience with the response was mostly, at the time, was mostly people being kind of like, wow. Like, okay, so let's talk about Japan for a minute. Our favorite <laughs> thing. There is a, I've talked about, there's, this is a, a fairly common hypothesis that is out there in the world. Most, uh, quite a large percentage of the, Jap and this is, this is just an observation that I've read other people make that I think is relatively accurate. A fairly high percentage of the Japanese population believes that there's no reason, is always surprised when someone who's not from Japan, like, is into Japanese things. Mm -hmm. And is into Japan, like there's a sort of a self a real a self perception of Japan just being an island that nobody cares about. 
despite the evidence to the contrary, like a yeah. Japanese, if you if you introduce a Japanese person to the idea that like millions of Americans watch anime, for a lot of them that will blow their mind. Okay, and and they'll be like, wow, really? And they will and and you see it, for example, the response to um, shit was the name of that video game that uh, we were we were talking about with Donovan. Uh, the one that, oh, oh Island uh, of Tsushima, right? Or what is it called? No, Ghost yeah. of Tsushima, right? So yes, people Ghost. didn't really respond to it from it for, for its historical inaccuracies because they were so enamored with the idea that somebody outside of Japan made a movie about Japan or made a video game about Japan. So, like, the critical response to it has been really slow to ramp up because it took a long time to get over the idea that, like, get over that, like, holy there's, shit. There was just a novelty that it existed. Yeah, like, the idea that, like, Somebody made a mo- made a video game, not just about like Japan, but like about a like a nominally about a historical like part of Japan, like with Ghost of Tsushima. It was like overwhelming, so people just responded to that. And I remember uh, Isle of Dogs being kind of similar, which kind of being like, "Holy shit! Like, what's happening here?" Somebody's like, and that's kind of where it, my memory of it ended, which is like, "What? What's happening yeah. here?" This isn't supposed to happen. We're the only ones who make movies about Japan. Well, because with with your memory of that ending, it probably means that there was not a huge like negative backlash. To no, it. probably not. Uh, but also, it doesn't seem like it caught on very well because it didn't do it didn't play well internationally. And the Japanese well, the Japanese market is large enough that it can impact international numbers. Yeah. Well, this movie um, this movie did not play well domestically either. So um, <laughs> it's kind of surprising that. Royal Tenenbaums even got made, considering how much money this movie lost. Well, Rushmore uh, first, or Rushmore. Mm-hmm. Rushmore I'm sorry, first. not Royal and, and, Yeah, but it's because people loved it, right? It yeah. caught on. It, it was good. like critics liked it. Yeah, even if it yeah. didn't make any money, it lost. Yeah, the uh, four point five million because the budget was right. five, and the, he only made right. like five hundred thousand. Right, it lost a lot. But um, but keep in mind, having Scorsese. Like, like, right. it doesn't. It sounds like yeah, that we're playing. Scorsese, Scorsese doesn't get on board with it until the early two thousand. Two thousand. Like, oh, right. interesting. Exactly. That's interesting to know. I didn't you know, know Tannenbaum's is already out, and, and and Rushmore's already out by the time Scorsese. So it's really gets just on. that L.A. Times review that did it. Yeah, that L.A. Times review that takes uh, that that condemns Sundance for not wanting to watch this. Is all it took to get <laughs> another movie made. It's like, really oh, you great. got the L.A. Times on board. You're good to go. Make another movie, man. Yeah, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. Yeah, this movie did not do well. Uh, it's interesting, you know. There's, there's there are a lot of American indie directors who this is true for, and and you know, but uh, Anderson's maybe most interesting as one of the more successful, where his first movie established him in such a manner where he's just been allowed to do his own thing, right? Sure. Right. Whereas you know, other people. I think I think particularly of actors when I think of this, but other people are sort of forced into doing you know the one big budget thing to finance. Right. Yeah. The, but true the directors thing you care a lot about, too. Right. The already the weird artsy thing you care about. Like oh, where he's just been allowed to do everything. What, and, one need only and, you know, look at Robert Rodriguez to understand a man who often makes movies <laughs> that he doesn't necessarily want to make right. to be able to finance right. the movies he sure. wants right. to make. Whereas right. Quentin Tarantino has never really had to do that. You know, Tarantino's like, never like, really had to do it, though his love of movies still has him doing other work, like writing course. other people's Wes screenplays Anderson or only yeah. deals with Wes Anderson. You're yeah. right. Yeah. You're Wes right. Anderson only deals with Wes Anderson. Tarantino, Shoot. I don't get the the feeling that he does it for money so much. It's just love of the game. Um, 
I don't think I feel like Wes Anderson just likes to play around in his world yeah. and is going to do that as long right. as he can. Well, you know, Spike, like Spike Lee makes the movies he wants. To yeah, make. that he would be true. That. Yeah, that's true too. Always. Yes. Yeah. Um, what What I would say about Wes Anderson though, what's interesting though, is like Wes Anderson might partially why he might get to play around to a certain extent is that his budget for like what it's going to take to make the movie he wants to make escalates over time with his like acknowledgement mm-hmm. you know what i mean it, it's a very it's a nice like right. kind of like slope they slope together right like rushmore is not a particularly financially challenging film to make you know what i mean like it could it could be but like if you have a producer there which are elements has, of it less so than like royal tenenbaums or was like okay well yeah. i have a bigger budget and obviously right. every part of this house has come from my mind you know right, right. exactly right. like and it's as, whole, as it his budget has thought. increased his World creation has also right. increased, but but also yeah, his fame has increased. <laughs> train and plates right. from Darjeeling, right, right? You know, like it. You know, there's just you know, months and months and months and months of hundreds of people employed to just make the place where he was going to shoot these right. four guys having conversation. Yeah, and you don't. They're not pointed out. They're not even focused. No, there's on. no. Re- yeah, there's there's no reason to to even know that. The person who was paid to hand paint these little <laughs> details, but yeah, I but the fact that he wants that... you to know it, right, right, he wants you to know it. Uh, I wonder how much of that is is him sort of paying it forward from the office on the Sony lot where they made seven hundred dollars <laughs> a week to sit for a year. Right, well, it's, like, that's, and, it's worth yeah. it. Go Thinking crazy about and right. Fail. right. Right. Like, right. here, I'm going to pay a lot of people to spend a lot of time making some <laughs> stuff that doesn't necessarily right. need to get made, but it'll pay a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely possible. And, like, I, but like my thought process is just, you know, like, Rushmore took, was between 9 and $10 million to make. Like, which is not a, is, you know, it's not cheap, but, like, he had producers who, despite even the fact that this movie didn't do well, really liked the movie that they made. Mm-hmm. Right, and I think that's really a, was an important thing, right? It's like even though it wasn't a success per se, like they were still on board. Like they still like when you watch that documentary that goes with this, they all talk about this as an amazing film that like they are happy with the results, right. and like that. Right. I think you know he almost maybe just like it's not. I want to call it lucky because it's not lucky, but like it was definitely a, it's a, an a resulting skill sort of thing. But like made a movie that appealed to the people who were willing to pay for him to make another movie. Exactly, yeah. And the other thing is Rushmore had, you know, it wasn't a whole lot more, but had more placement for a few reasons. Number one, it was a teenager, and that's maybe the sort of people who needed to see these movies about emotionally stunted people. It fit a little more. And number two, it was these guys digging into their youth and being able to make a more fun movie. But also, like, uh, Max, like Fisher, takes over MTV for a week or whatever, where everything was introduced by him with the right. curtains. You were like, you understood the iconography of the movie before you saw it. Right. And right. Um, I didn't live, I lived a little through that, and that's very vague, but just looking back, you know. Whereas this movie, there was nothing to right. preface it. You know, like... Well, totally, yeah. I mean, it is, it is his debut picture, right? Like, it's just, you know, it is what... It, that they're all like this, right? Yeah. In the sense that, like, wh- whose film about what? I'm not ever like, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is also, you know, the an establishment of of another Wes Anderson. Like everything about Wes Anderson is in this movie, right? So the soundtrack to this mm-hmm. is uh, is very uh, very good. 
<laughs> Mother's Bod doing most yes. of the incident. There's like music three the stone stuff. songs like mashed um, together in musical the choices. last bit, so it's weird. Right, right, right. I did think one interesting difference between the short and the uh, and the full the full movie uh, soundtrack wise is that the uh, the the gun practice scene in the short is mm-hmm. set to uh, the skating song from Charlie Brown Christmas. Oh, interesting. No uh, way. Yeah, it's a very weird choice. <laughs> no, that's perfect. I would have much rather that. Right? It also affirms me, uh, like the whole thing with Wes Anderson taking so much from those just ennui-filled things, whether, again, it's right. it's J.D. Salinger or we're talking about uh, Charlie Brown. You know, Peanuts is so full of that wit and, you know, like... They're like, oh, why is Buckley a beagle? Oh, because Snoopy was a beagle. <laughs> right. Like, right, duh. Right. Uh, that's, uh, that's what, what a dog is. That's what a dog is. <laughs> it's Snoopy. There is only one dog. <laughs> well, actually, right. we discussed and that. There's only Anderson, one cat. There really might be. All trees are oak. All dogs are beagles. All dogs are beagles. <laughs> and there is dogs only one dogs. cat in the entire universe. <laughs> and it's Heathcliff. Not it, it, just, it, just, it just crosses all time and space boundaries to be in every single point of every person who's ever seen a cat's life that is much more plausible <laughs> with heathcliff than it is garfield yes well they're the same cat it's it, like let's be clear here this is this is universal to all cats including the real world there is just a single cat moving back and forth threading through time so garfield is heathcliff yeah and yes. heathcliff is garfield okay. it's all it's all one cat buddha and jesus there's only one cat in heathcliff the world. and garfield there's only one cat yeah. in the universe <laughs> and every cat you've ever encountered uh, is that cat at a different time in a different place and it's in its never ending existence. Yes. Yeah. This is I, I believe this wholeheartedly. It sounds plausible. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, maybe it's time to pull this to a close. Okay. Uh <laughs> We'll, we'll end on we'll end on your I killed it, <laughs> I killed <laughs> on, it. A, on a pun yeah. about Pat's stupid uh, cat you theory. didn't kill it I think we've just talked this movie out and, and we're getting a little long <laughs> at this oh. point uh, I have I have some notes I haven't read hold on real quick oh, uh, yeah. real yeah. shots, if you have wallpaper anything else designs yes uh was more Wes Anderson than I thought. I think I said that. Um, hard to like the characters like the beginning of Rushmore when I first saw it, but I like it more. Still very funny. Um, I, I have Future Man with a bunch of question marks. I love um, Future Man's the greatest <laughs> like, named character ever. Yeah, why is yeah. his name Future Man? Yeah. Oh, oh, uh, Bob um, is very un-Wes Anderson. Bob in general is a very un-Wes Anderson character, mm-hmm. and it makes this very unique. Um, which is why I think I like it more now than I did because it stands out instead of being just like just the blueprint um, for what would come. Uh, the third person, Dignan, is is amazing. The fact that he refers yeah, that to himself. Yeah, he talks about himself. Yeah, in the, yeah. yeah. Uh, the whole third act is great. I One that I didn't say before, but because uh, I was being more critical because I am of this movie for some reason, but not bold but quirky. I just said that about the whole movie. Like it's not even that bold of a movie to have made, but like, it's just full of so much. It it just skirts around the thing it could be, which is really also unique. All right. Those are my thoughts. Casey, any final thoughts of yours? Any notes you didn't get through? (sighs) No. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) The resignation of that. That's That's it for us. Bye. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, well, thank you so much 
for joining us, friends. Always, always a pleasure to have you guys on. Uh, always yeah. a pleasure to be here yeah, in our house. You. It's been good. <laughs> it is a nice house. Uh, but yeah, this week we've been talking about Bottle Rocket from 1996, directed by Wes Anderson, written by Anderson and Owen Wilson, who also stars. And it's uh yeah, it's a fun movie. Next week we'll be uh, talking about what appears to be a French swashbuckling adventure comedy from 1952 called Fan Fan La Tulip. Uh, so there's that. <laughs> it's uh, that we've been on an interesting string nice. for. Uh, Did for that things. do well internationally? I, I wonder. Well, here's yeah. a weird thing. Uh, French indie films do play very well here and have for a very long time. <laughs> um, don't know why. Well, that's that's part of French imperialism too. So, uh, oh, yeah, of course. Uh, anyway, Americans know nothing about you know imperialism, but, so we don't have a lot of. But that's coins next week. Anymore. That's next week, and it'll be uh, it'll be something. Whatever it is, it'll be something. Yeah, uh, but yeah, thank you uh, so much for listening. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I completely forgot how I normally end the show for some reason. I don't know either. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Lost in Criterion. I am, as always, the Adam Glass with me, as always, John Patrick Hovatari Dorgan, and we'll see you next time. You can find me on Twitter at the Adam Glass. My partner is John Patrick Boatari Dorgan, and you can find him at J Patrick. Check out more of the show at lostincriterion.com or hey, give us a review on iTunes. It's nice. If you really like what you hear, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash lostincriterion. Hey, our theme music is by Jonathan Hape. Check him out at jonathanhape.com. And thanks for listening. We appreciate it. Would you like me to read you some wanted, uh, Fast I, and Furious titles? I definitely want you to read all of these. Here we go. Yes. Number one, Wildo Speedo. Number two, Wildo Speedo <laughs> X2. Number three, Wildo Speedo X3 Tokyo Drift. All writ- Tokyo Drift is not written in Japanese. Worth noting. Interesting. Uh, yeah, the ahead. subtitles are never written in Japanese. Only Wild Speed is written in Japanese. Here we go. Next one. Excellent. Uh, number four, Wildo Speedo Max. <laughs> Number five, Wildo Speedo Mega Max. Number six, Wildo Speedo Euro Mission. Numbers, whatever. I forget not what number I'm on now. Wildo Please Speedo tell me you Sky that, Mission. That has to be okay. number eight, eight. Wildo Speedo Ice Break. Those are the names of all the yeah. Wild uh, Speed movies. What a- yeah, I, yeah. I, I, yes, I absolutely. Do. They are amazing because the, the 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 reason I'm saying Wild Speedo <laughs> is because it is written in Japanese, 
and it is that is the way the guy who does the announcement for the movies reads it. He goes, Wild Speedo. Like in the in the commercials. Excellent. Like in this really like exaggerated, a bad, like over a bad Italian yeah, accent. It's amazing. 